encourage you to open that to uh, Luke chapter 11. That's where we'll be this morning. Last week, Pastor David preached one of the most... Say anything to him about that beforehand. I don't want to put pressure on him. But uh, he knew. I mean, it's the Lord's Prayer. I didn't have to tell him. Even people who don't go to church have a familiarity with the Lord's Prayer, right? It's like Psalm 23. It finds its way into all sorts of... Uh, you know, even in pop culture, like in the secular world, you'll see the Lord's Prayer mentioned. In fact, Katie and I went to go see a movie a couple weeks ago, A Quiet Place 2, kind of a sci-fi thriller, alien sort of deal, and one of the characters in the movie was scared, hiding under a table, just repeating the Lord's Prayer uh, over and over. So you will see the Lord's Prayer all over the place. And um, what David showed us last week is it's not formulaic. It's not something you just hide under a table and repeat over and over again. There's five different petitions in it. It's a model for us. It's a structure. It gives structure to our prayer lives. It shapes how we talk to God, how we approach God. So if last week uh, taught us about how we pray, then this week Jesus is talking about the attitude that we should have uh, as we pray, and he uses some word pictures to help us along in our understanding. So let's read uh, Luke 11, and I'll start reading in, in verse 5. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened." Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Father, we desire to look and to see this morning. We want to uh, look into the scriptures and to... Uh, behold who you are and also to understand what is required of us and uh, this is a very practical passage for us this morning Lord to be able to understand uh, the the posture of heart that you want from your people as we come before you in prayer and uh, I pray that if we do not pray enough we'd be convicted about that this morning if we've been praying with the wrong attitudes or the wrong motivations I pray we'd be convicted about that this morning uh, if we've underestimated uh, how you desire to work in our lives through prayers. Uh, I pray that we would be convicted about that this morning. So we ask you, God, to speak, and, and we ask to be able to understand, to be able to look and to see. And we are confident, Lord, you will answer this prayer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you wanted to say this passage is about two principles, I would say the two principles are having persistent confidence in your prayer life and having persistent trust in your prayer life. Okay, persistent confidence and persistent trust. And they go hand in hand. If you are confident in someone, you're going to trust them. If you trust someone, you're going to have confidence in them. So uh, confidence and trust in our prayer lives combined with persistence. We start with the story here in verses 5 through 10. 
And Jesus illustrates persistent confidence by saying, uh, imagine you go to a friend's house at midnight and you say, hey, I need three loaves of bread. I got another friend in town. He's been traveling. He's hungry. And I've got nothing here. And Jesus asked, who has a friend who would say to you, go away. My door is shut. My kids are in bed. I can't get up. Jesus says that your friend is going to get up and get you bread. And it's not even necessarily because he's a good friend or that he is pleased that you are there at that time of night, right? He's going to get up and he's going to do this for you because you're persistently knocking on his door, okay? And you're just like, if it gets you gone, it gets you gone, right? And so you bring uh, the bread. This is a weird story to us as Americans because if you knock on my door at midnight asking for a couple of loaves of Pepperidge Farm, we might throw hands, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's not something that we do in our culture, if you knock on somebody's door at midnight in our culture, it's, there, there must be something hysterical going on. There must be uh, a, an emergency, a crisis that is happening. In fact, you're all sitting there going, there better be, right? If you come knock on my door unexpectedly at midnight. So for us, this is a strange story. But it was a strange story to those in ancient culture as well. Not because of the time of night. Getting a knock on the door at midnight may not be so strange. Instead... It was unthinkable that somebody could be this unprepared to have company over in Israelite culture. That's what was strange to them. Because the Israelite sense of responsibility for hospitality was immense. So bread was one of the most essential basic things that you provided for your guest if you were a host, if you were being hospitable. Three loaves of bread was pretty customary to have around the table because you just rip off a piece and um, then you dip it in some of the, the entrees. And so everybody would kind of take turns doing that. So they'd have three loaves of bread there, enough to last the entire meal. So when we read the story, we, re- we recoil at the idea that somebody would come to our house at midnight asking for bread. When they heard Jesus tell this story, they recoiled at the idea that what kind of fool doesn't have bread? Like, who doesn't always have three loaves ready to go? That was just standard operation. You eat bread, you make bread. You eat bread, you make bread. You always had bread ready for somebody to knock on your door. To have to shamefully go over to your neighbor's house and knock on the door at midnight and say, listen, uh, I got somebody here, I got no bread was basically to knock on the door and say, look, I'm flighty, I'm unreliable, I'm unprepared, I need your help. It was a shameful thing. And yet, Jesus is saying, the person on the other side of the door is going to open it up and give them whatever they need, because while that person might be annoyingly unprepared, at least they're persistent. Even if the lender is grouchy as they give the bread away, they will give it because of the persistence. So why does Jesus tell this story here right on the back of giving the, uh, the structure for our prayer lives? Because he wants us to understand that if a grouchy friend will give an irresponsible friend bread because he's persistent, how much more will our God, who's not grouchy about answering prayers, give his children what they need as they pray persistently? And then he builds on that with what he says in verses 9 and 10. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks 
it will be opened. There is a purposeful growing intensity in the words that Jesus uses here. Ask, seek, knock. Like if you ask for something, that means that you've got a need, right? And you know it, so you ask for help. Pretty, it's pretty basic, but if you then go out and, and you seek help, that, that's kind of taking it to another level. You, you're taking action now. You're not just going around, hey, are you able to help? Are you able to help? But like you're, you're going out and you are aggressively seeking help. So think about it this way. If you're at the hospital and you're laying in a bed and they have a the little button you hit to let the nurse know that you need help, if you hit that button, you're asking for help, okay? But if you get up out of the bed, in your little gown, and you go out and start looking around in the hallway for somebody, that's a whole nother level of need, isn't it? You're saying, I, I can't just hit this button and wait here. I need help now. I'm going to get up. I'm going to walk out there and look around. I'm seeking someone to assist me. And then if you were to walk out in the hallway and you look around and you don't see anybody, but you see the break room of the nurses over here, so you go over there and you start pounding on the door, that, that's an even higher level right of need and as they open that door they're going to expect that you're in uh in an emergency I mean, this person really needs some assistance here john macarthur says that these three levels of persistence with god are like this to ask god is to say kind of god it's me i need help to seek him is to say god i really need you to hear me right now and then to knock is to pound on the door of heaven. And Jesus stacks these words up on purpose to give force to the teaching. To, to escalate it. All three verbs, by the way, are in, in the Greek are in the present imperative tense. And you're like, that, that means nothing to me. Okay? Uh, so here's what that means. It means they're ongoing commands. They never stop. That's what that means. Keep on asking. This is what Jesus is saying. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Every single day. Don't stop. And that is the attitude of the heart that we should have as we pray. He's not saying the harder you pray, the more chance there is of your prayers being answered. Because God was going to answer this guy's prayers, but then he heard you and, and said, well, that's a lot of passion. I guess I'll answer his prayers instead. Or he heard your prayers and he thought, I'm not answering that prayer. And then you prayed so hard that he said, I've just got to do it. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is be persistent because what your persistence shows is that you have confidence in the Lord. That you believe the Lord. Persistence demonstrates faith. I will keep asking. I will keep seeking. I will keep knocking. I will keep pounding on the door of heaven because I am confident God will hear my prayers and I am confident answers will be given. The door I'm pounding on will be opened. Now, this is a good time to stop and say there's a lot of people who get on your TV sets, men and women who stand up and they will teach a passage like this and say that what Jesus is saying is that as long as you have enough faith and you name it and you claim it, that whatever you ask for, it's going to be yours. There are prosperity teachers who take this passage and they distort it. If you have enough faith, God will give you anything you ask for. Or, if you have enough faith and you sow into my ministry, then 
God will give you whatever you ask for. I, I just want to remind you what the Bible says about people like that. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 5. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, treating God like a slot machine, where if you, do, uh, if you have enough faith or you have, uh, say, certain words, then you just pull the arm and he is obligated to spit out the answer that you want to your prayer, that is not a doctrine conforming to godliness. It's paganism. He is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. People who teach the false doctrine of name it and claim it theology the false doctrine that's contrary to the words of Christ, for their own gain, understand nothing. This is what the Bible says. So I say that this morning just to say to you, don't listen to people like that. A lot of times people say, but don't you think God still uses that false teacher's ministry to bring some people to Christ? He might use it to show them what error looks like in order to draw them to actual truth. But I think Satan uses those ministries to deceive droves of people into hell. And so I say all this because as your pastor, I want to guard you against it. Be careful. Be careful of wolves who would teach these things and distort Jesus' teaching on prayer. Don't listen to them. The Bible says they understand nothing about prayer. Would you go to Kim Kardashian and say, Kim, can you just, you know, just teach me a little bit about how to talk to the Lord? You say, no, she doesn't understand anything about prayer. Well, neither do these people. You might be better off with her, I don't know. So, don't listen to them. Instead, listen to Jesus. Because Jesus absolutely knows what prayer is truly about. He knows and tells us it's not about our needs first and foremost, right? We saw that last week. There's nothing wrong with praying for daily bread, but before you get to daily bread, first and foremost, you pray about the name of the Father and you pray about the kingdom of the Father, the kingdom of God, your kingdom come. And so the prayers God answers with gifts and findings and open doors are prayers not in which your desires are being sought first and foremost, but prayers in which his kingdom is being sought first and foremost, which is why Jesus taught in Matthew 6, verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Another way we might say this is the sort of persistent prayers that God answers, it's true prayer that is concerned with Jesus' name and will. Because that is what true prayer is concerned with. In John 16, verse 23, Jesus says, In that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. So we ask the Father in the name of Jesus when we pray persistently. We seek the Father in the name of Jesus when we pray persistently. And when we knock on the Father's door, we do it in the name of Jesus. And those are the prayers that God answers. Now again, this doesn't mean that in some sort of formulaic fashion, some sort of slot machine God fashion, that you can pray anything you want to pray and just tack Jesus' name to the end of it and that prayer is going to be answered. 
I worked when I was just trying to make money right before I got marriage. Uh, got, I got marriage. Right before I got married, I did get marriage. It's been great. Um, right before I got married, I had two jobs. Uh, I worked at a church as a student pastor, and then I worked at a call center uh, where it was a prayer ministry, and people would call. And uh, it was kind of a brutal job, but man, people asked me for some wild stuff on the phone. They called, I remember one guy called, he said, I just want to pray that God would make me a black belt in karate. I said, okay, I said, are, are you like working towards that? Are you in karate training and classes or whatever? No, no, I just want to be a black belt. And I thought, well, that's just not how that works. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Once somebody called me and said, I, I just want you to pray that today I'm going to open up my mailbox, there'll be a check for $2 million in there. And I thought, I just don't know if you should have $2 million. I don't know if I'm... I, I'll pray God gives you all that you need to be everything that he's calling you to be, okay? I will pray for that. You can't just tack Jesus' name on a prayer to have a black belt, not going to any karate classes, and just boom, he's going to spit out a black belt to you. This is not how this works. And that's silly, I know. But there are other prayers that are not so silly. Prayers where we come to him wanting healing. Prayers where we come to him needing... Not, not some ridiculous open up the mailbox financial blessing, but, you know, ends are not being met. And, and, and you need ends to be met so that the bills can be paid, right? We come to them with those sorts of prayers. But even in those prayers, we can't say that just because you slap Jesus' name on the prayer, he's definitely going to answer it. Or that he's obligated to. That's not what's being taught here. It means that when we pray persistently for things, when we say in Jesus' name, at the end of those persistent prayers, we're saying, God, I believe this is going to glorify you. I believe it's going to be glorifying to your name, to the name of your Son. So when I say in Jesus' name, amen, I'm saying this will be glorifying to the name of your Son, and I'm saying, I agree with you, Lord, that this should happen. But sometimes the Lord gives a different answer than we were looking for. And when that happens, let me tell you something. You can be sure that the prayer is being answered in the way that is best for the kingdom of God. Now, you might not have understood it was best for the kingdom of God, but he does. And I'm thankful for the prayers that God has said no to or the prayers that he has not answered. Because whatever I was asking for, even if I did it with good intentions, was not going to be what was best for the glory of the Father. But I still think God loves, even when, we, when, when Paul comes to him and says, take away this thorn in my flesh, right? Three times in 2 Corinthians. Even though God's answer was no, Paul came with the right heart. I believe that even when God gives us a different answer, he loves when his children come with the right heart. We see the persistence in the saints of the Old Testament. Think about Hannah in 1 Samuel 1. Verses 12 through 15, it says, Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard, so Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long would you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. And if you read that passage, she was praying persistently to God for a son. A son that she could dedicate to the Lord for his glory. She poured out her soul before the Lord. That's what persistent prayer looks like. 
Ezra, one of the great rebuilders of Israel after exile. He mourned over Israel's sin. He mourned over how they worshipped false gods uh, from the culture that was around them. He tore his clothes. You know you are upset about the sin of your people when you... A lot of you say, man, I'm so upset about what's going on in America. Have you ripped out your actual hair and beard yet? Okay, that's what Ezra did. And he sits there appalled until the evening. And it says, but at the evening offering, I rose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, O my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. So all day long, this brother's been in mourning. He's been ripping out his hair, tearing his clothes, and then as the evening comes, he's still not done. Gets down on his knees and stretches out his hands to the Lord and confesses sin. Paul shows us an example of persistent prayer on a number of occasions. So when he, he is writing to the Ephesians, he says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ which exists among you, in your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And he says similar things to the Philippians, to the Colossians. We saw it this past Wednesday in our first Corinthians study. To the Thessalonians, to Timothy, to Philemon. So to all of them. He's saying, I'm continuously praying a prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord for you. He tells us about the prayer of Epaphras for the people that he pastored in Colossae. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings. Listen, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. That has been one of the most impactful verses in all of Scripture for me as a pastor. That's what the prayer life of a pastor for his people looks like. He labors for them in prayer, that they would stand perfect and fully assured in the will of God. But of course, there's no greater example of persistent prayer than Jesus. Consistently, you see him praying in the Gospels, but the book of Hebrews sums up the prayer life of our Lord. It says, in the days of his flesh... He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. The Greek word for piety can also translate to reverence. So Jesus prayed and made supplication with loud crying and tears, and he was heard because of his godly reverence before his Father. When a lot of people read this passage... Or they read the passage in Luke 18 where the widow is persistent presenting her case to a judge, and we'll get to that in a couple of months. They tend to think, if I am persistent enough, I'll change God's mind. But again, this is a wrong view of prayer. It's a wrong view of God. The Bible tells us that His Word is fixed in the heavens. The Bible tells us He is not a man that He should change His mind. You say, well, then what's the point of praying? Because you were changed. It's not about changing God's mind. It's about changing your mind. It's about changing your heart. Because in the persistence, we grow in confidence toward Him. I believe God in His sovereign plan has already folded up the prayers of His people into that plan. So when you pray, you're participating in the sovereign plan of God. And you were growing in your trust of the sovereign plan of God. 
And you are learning to ask Him for things that do not bring you glory, that don't advance your kingdom, but that glorify Him and advance His kingdom. And we grow in confidence that as we pound on the door of heaven, He answers. Not grouchy, but loving us. Overjoyed to give us gifts. If you don't believe God, you won't ask Him for much. If you don't pray much, that says that your faith is not very strong. You're not very confident in Him. And if you think that's unfair, just let me ask you, when's the last time you needed something done and you said, who's the most unreliable person I can think of? When you need a favor, you go to the most reliable people that you can think of, the most rock-steady people you can think of. So when you're in need, if you don't go to the Lord, what does it say about what you think of Him? Your level of persistence in prayer speaks directly to your confidence in the Lord to do His will in your life. So how persistent are you? Let's keep going and, and look at the rest of the passage. It says, Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. Will he not give him uh, a snake instead of a fish, will he? Uh, or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is kind of a, a humorous illustration. Probably people laughed when Jesus said it. So imagine you're like on a field trip with your kid. All right, lunchtime rolls around. You get out the peanut butter and jellies that you made up. And um, one of the kids says, Dad, can I get like a tuna sandwich? Did you bring the tuna? There's no sun, but here's a live serpent. You'd be like, who is this guy? Like, what, what is wrong with this guy? Is this dirty Harry? Like, you know, fathering his child over here? Like, you know, or if the kid goes, Dad, did you bring any deviled eggs? Um, no sun, but here's a scorpion. Right? Sink your teeth into it. Right? You'd be like, what is, what is wrong? This guy, I've got to call somebody. Right? We've got to report him. This guy's deranged. Because fathers don't do that to their kids. You wouldn't do that to your son. I, I wouldn't do that to my sons. In fact, I love giving gifts to my kids. It, it is one of my love languages. Probably my, my main love language. Every year at Christmas, things get out of control. I start buying in August. I promise my wife it won't get out of control. The time comes to wrap it all up. And she's like, where did all this come from? What have you been doing? Where did you even get the money for all of this? What is going on, you know? And every year I grin because I, 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 I knew what I was doing. I got it from my mom, and uh, I've handed it down now in, in the family, keeping the tradition alive. And, and listen, I, I love nothing more. I, my Christmas is sitting there watching my kids open those presents. That's it. That's it. That, that's my Christmas. I thought I loved Christmas, then I had kids, and I didn't realize how much I actually loved it. And I'm a sinner. I'm evil. Like, if Jesus hadn't done something in my life, I would be living a de completely depraved life cut off from God, right? This is who I was from birth. Romans 3 says, I'm not good on my own on any level. I do not seek God, and yet I know how to give good gifts to my kids. I don't give them scorpions if they want an egg. I don't give them live serpents if they want a tuna sandwich. So if that's true of me, and if that's true of you, how much more is our perfect God, who is not evil, going to lovingly answer the prayers of His children and give them not just gifts, but the best possible gift? 
right? What does Jesus say in verse 13? How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now, He could have mentioned any number of gifts that God gives us. Answered prayers, right? Um, New mercies every day, daily bread for our table. There's so many things He could have mentioned, but He just goes for the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, the Old Testament prophets told Israel a day was going to come where the Holy Spirit would no longer just rest on prophets and priests and kings, but on every son and daughter of the Lord. So in Ezekiel 36, here's what it said. This is a prophecy. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So what's being said there is that when the new covenant comes, the people who were not saved, who had a heart of stone, are going to have that rock removed and are be given a heart of flesh. And the New Testament, flesh tends to be associated with bad, right? Your your pre-Jesus life. But here flesh is good because now a heart of flesh can actually respond to God and be in relationship with God right and and then because the spirit uh now dwells in your heart of flesh my spirit will be within you you'll actually walk in the statutes of god you will not want to rebel against god he'll cause you to want to obey him he'll change your desires from the inside out with his spirit joel chapter 2 it will come about after this that i will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy your old men will dream dreams your young men will see visions even on the male and female servants i will pour out my spirit in those days everybody from the king's palace to the slave house if they have repented of sin and put their faith in christ man woman children they get the spirit of god And on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, these prophecies were fulfilled. The Spirit of God was poured out on the people of God. And at first, the giving of the Spirit was accompanied by speaking in tongues. And that was so when the non-Jewish people came to faith and they received the Spirit, the Jewish believers would actually accept that. Because at the time in the church, Jewish and Gentile Uh, still very much had a lot of heat between one another. So when a bunch of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem hear that there's like Gentiles in Samaria coming to know Jesus, they're going to be like, I don't think so. I mean, we're fine with the new covenant, but new covenant for the people of God. I mean, new covenant, Gentiles? You let Samaritans in? And so when those Samaritans and when those Syrians and when, when, when people from all the different nations, the Syrophoenicians, started speaking in tongues when they received the Spirit, it was evidence to the Jewish Christians that their salvation was real. Peter and the boys were able to go, guys, they're, they're speaking the same tongues that you spoke in at Pentecost. They're speaking in the same tongues, they've received the same Spirit as you. Now, we'll get into this more when we get to the book of Acts, after we finish Luke. But once the Jew-Gentile issue is resolved, the gift of tongues, I believe, and my understanding from the Scriptures, is that it drew to a close in terms of being a consistent sign of salvation. Because that issue was resolved. The purpose of it had come to pass. But the Holy Spirit continues to dwell in people Jewish and Gentile alike. And here's what Ephesians 1 says about the Spirit. It says, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, 
who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. So when you put your faith in Jesus and you are saved, the Holy Spirit is a seal of your salvation. He is a pledge of the inheritance that is to come for eternity. He is a pledge of the reward that awaits you as the people of God. Every time you think, what's heaven going to be like? And I can't wait to get there. And then maybe you start to think, is it really true? You go, oh, it's definitely true because I've got the Holy Spirit residing in my heart, reminding me that God keeps His promises and that God gives the best gifts. The Spirit Himself then, who is a gift, gives you gifts. Isn't this cool? 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. Now there are varieties of uh, gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. We don't have time to get into all the gifts, nor do we need to for the context. The bottom line is I want you to see how the Holy Spirit is the ultimate gift from the Lord. A gift so great that in John 14, Jesus says, it's better that I go away and that you get the Spirit. And the gift of the Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity, and He's with you wherever you go, and then He is distributing gifts to us for us to use in glorifying God and building up the church and serving the world. So why does Jesus bring up the Spirit? How did we get from dads not giving snakes to their kids if they ask for a fish to the Holy Spirit? Because again, if imperfect fathers give good Christmas presents... And how much more will our perfect Father give us the perfect gift? The greatest gift. And if He has given us the greatest possible gift in the Spirit, can't you trust Him for everything else that you are persistently and confidently knocking on the door of heaven for? In fact, that's one of the great works of the Spirit we don't talk about enough, that as He is transforming us and using us and working in our lives, we are reminded time and time again that God is a good gift giver that can persistently be trusted. Every time you use your spiritual gift to serve the church, every time the Spirit is helping you to understand the Word of God when you sit down to read it, every time you don't know what to pray, and you're reminded from Romans 8.26 that the Spirit goes for the throne Uh, to the throne making intercessions for you. Every time we're reminded just how good of a gift giver this God is. Everything you have in your life that's good as a Christian, you can thank the Holy Spirit for it. Every single thing. Anything you can do for Christ, He gifted you to do it. Anything you can understand of Christ, He gave you the understanding. You never even would have responded to God if not for the work of the Spirit in your heart to make your heart alive. He's everything to us. People say that Baptists don't talk about the Holy Spirit. You're just hanging out with the wrong Baptists. You asked God for a gift, He gave you the giver to live in your heart. How about that? And that's why Jesus brings the Spirit up here, because it shows just how trustworthy this God is. 
In Jesus' parable, we can assume the sinful father gives the son the fish he asked for, the egg that he asked for. God doesn't even give you what you asked for. You ask for a gift, he gives the giver. It's even better than what you asked for. And every time you pray to him, you can persistently trust him to be that generous. So as you pray to your Father in heaven, as you ask him to make his name holy in all the earth, as you ask for his kingdom to come, as you ask for your daily bread, as you ask for forgiveness, as you are, are forgiving others, as you are asking him to protect you in temptation, you can be persistently confident, you can persistently trust the Lord. He's not a grouchy neighbor, he's not an evil father, and yet even those guys answer the door and give lunches. He is the God who is love, he is merciful, he is slow to anger. He's life-giving, he's sin-forgiving, he is son-sending, he is spirit-gifting, he is eternal. His goodness does not change from day to day, from eternity past to eternity future. He is good, and when you pray persistently, you can trust him. So ask and seek and knock boldly and persistently. And you will see dams burst open for his glory and fame. Let's pray.